Welcome to BrainStuff, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, BrainStuff, Lauren Vogelbaum here. Back in 1902, First Lady Edith Roosevelt, wife of President Theodore Roosevelt, took it upon herself to convert an area of the White House grounds that once housed stables for horses and carriages into a classic colonial garden as part of the Roosevelt renovation. Then, in 1913, First Lady Ellen Louise Axon Wilson, the first wife of President Woodrow Wilson, followed her lead by replacing what had become known as the West Garden with a Rose Garden. And President Franklin D. Roosevelt went on in 1935 to appoint famed landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., a son of the creator of New York's Central Park, to freshen up the design of the Rose Garden. In 1961, under the direction of First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy, amateur gardenist Rachel Lambert Bunny Mellon was asked to design the current garden, which led to what is known today as the Kennedy Rose Garden, adjacent to the Oval Office and Cabinet Room. We spoke via email with Dan Roberts, a liberal arts and history professor at the University of Richmond in Virginia, who also serves as executive producer and host of the syndicated history radio program, A Moment in Time. Roberts explained, it was part of a general landscape redesign of the White House complex. The Rose Garden balanced the structure with the East Garden, or Jacqueline Kennedy Garden, on the other side of living quarters in the central and original building of the White House. This is essentially the Rose Garden we know today. So how did Bunny Mellon become involved? It all began at a summer picnic at Mellon's Cape Cod Beach House that included President and Mrs. Kennedy as guests, according to an interview Mellon conducted for the White House Historical Association. In that interview, Mellon recalled, Hardly had the president came ashore from his boat when he suggested we sit down and discuss a garden for the White House. He and Mrs. Kennedy had just returned from a state visit to France, followed by stops in England and Austria. The president had noted that the White House had no garden equal in quality or attractiveness to the gardens that he had seen and in which he had been entertained in Europe. There, he had recognized the importance of gardens surrounding an official residence and their appeal to the sensibilities of all people. Mellon envisioned a 50 by 100 foot lawn that's about 15 by 30 meters, large enough to accommodate a thousand people for ceremonial activities and receptions and small enough to be covered by a tent, flanked in all four corners by magnolia trees and 12 foot or four meter wide borders planted with smaller trees, roses, and other flowers, including flowers used during Thomas Jefferson's period in office. The plans also called for a platform on the west end of the garden near the Oval Office and a flagstone terrace on the East End to serve as a place where the president could relax and entertain guests or host small luncheons. To execute her design, Mellon sought out Irvin Williams, head gardener of Washington's Kenilworth Aquatic Gardens, and then asked Jackie to arrange for Williams to be transferred to the White House's chief gardener, a prestigious job that he held for almost 50 years. The garden was unveiled on April 24, 1962, And the first ceremonial occasion held there in July of 1962 featured the swearing-in of Anthony Celebrezzi, the former mayor of Cleveland, as the new Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. Mellon's design created the White House Central Lawn so familiar to today's TV viewers, according to Roberts. He said, It's surrounded by flower beds anchored by crabapple and little-leaved linden trees. Hedges of thyme and boxwood are intermingled with flower beds filled with the garden's signature rose varieties, Queen Elizabeth, Pascali, Pat Nixon, and King's Ransom. Blooming bulbs of jonquil, daffodils, and tulips burst into verdant color in springtime, and summertime annuals paint the flower beds with rich hues until fall, when flowering kale and chrysanthemums enliven the garden with color 
almost until the early days of winter. While Kennedy was in office, he used the gardens to host Peace Corps volunteers before they went overseas, invited the award-winning University of Arkansas Choir to join him there, welcomed Algerian Premier Ahmed Ben Bella with a 21-gun salute, and greeted the astronauts of Project Mercury. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Rose Garden also served as a dramatic backdrop as he and advisors devised a strategy to avoid a nuclear war with Russia. Today, the Rose Garden is kept as a private reserve for the president to relax, read, converse with his aides, and engage in contemplation, according to Roberts. But he added that through the years, presidents have also used the space to showcase diplomatic, social, and political events, making important public proclamations, holding press conferences, greeting significant guests, introducing political allies and appointees, rallying allies for partisan battles, and celebrating congressional and national victories. Robert said that among some of the most memorable activities to take place there were when, quote, Tricia Nixon was wed to Edward F. Cox in spectacular nuptials in 1971, and President Bill Clinton presided over the declaration of peace between Israel and Jordan in 1994. But it's not all serious stuff. He also said, One quirky tradition rears its head, or shall we say, their heads, in high summer. On July 1st, garden gnomes mysteriously appear, scattered throughout the Rose Garden. The number of these stone characters happens to coincide with the number of living presidents. And on Monday, July 27th of 2020, First Lady Melania Trump's office released a statement announcing a massive renewal and enhancement of the White House Rose Garden. The accompanying report lists as part of its mission statement, quote, to curate an outdoor experience transcendent of each administration and promote design solutions that are steeped in scholarship and intellect and are reflective of meticulous attention to narrative, intent, and detail. Today's episode was written by Wendy Bowman and produced by Tyler Klang. For more on this and lots of other green topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. BrainStuff is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Listener.